0: Hi guys and welcome to episode 71 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead. Now we've got a couple of segments today which are pretty different but they are both incredibly interesting and I'm hoping pretty on brand for exactly the kind of thing that you expect from the Road CC podcast. So as always I am George and I am your presenter Um, but today both The interviews that we have are actually being done by Ryan. Um, And first off, Ryan speaks to Dara McQuaid, who is former racer and chairman of Green Ace. So effectively what they're looking at and what they're discussing is everything around kind of the environmentalism of cycling. And also looking at some of the more interesting and kind of challenging aspects of it, specifically around the use of fossil fuels and fossil fuel companies in terms of sponsorship of cycling and whether it's worth taking that money to do good than it is to not take that money and not promote the companies. So it's kind of an interesting dichotomy and an interesting way of of discussing that with somebody who's incredibly knowledgeable about it. Um, And then Ryan sat down with Lorna Devonish, who is spokesperson for Hevertree and Lipton Livable Neighbourhood Group. Try saying that after you've had a couple of whiskeys. I'll give you that as a challenge. So Ryan spoke to Lorna about Effectively, how LTNs have been um, used and how the data that has been used to kind of justify their removal has been, let's just say, questionable. Uh, and Lorna was kind of at the forefront of challenging data because the benefits that her community had seen from LTNs was effectively being undermined by the local council's um, Tory run. Uh, but, you know, it's not exclusively a Tory problem. It just seems to be mainly a Tory problem um, using kind of false data in order to justify removal uh, which was not great Uh, so it was really interesting to hear from Lorna about everything that happened around that how she kind of got around it um, what she had to do and effectively the story about what happened so I won't keep you guys any further Um, I hope you enjoy the podcast and here is episode 71 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead
1: As we all knew, cycling is one of the greenest, cleanest forms of transport around, with the bicycle arguably the closest thing we have to a silver bullet to cut emissions and tackle climate change. But, as we also all knew, other forms of cycling beyond the squeaky clean status as a mode of transport, such as the professional racing side, ultra-cycling, organised leisure events... Tend to see riders fly all over the world, racking up the emissions as they go to take part in events during which they're surrounded by an army of motor vehicles wearing jerseys emblazoned with the logo of an oil company. That particular paradox came to the fore earlier this month when the recent trend for no-fly policies in ultra-cycling endurance events such as Lost Dot's brand new 1600km gravel accursed race received a backlash from some cyclists including Route CC's very own Vecchio Joe Burt. He argued that such blanket flying bands restrict accessibility for events that tend to be in far flung parts of the world close the sport off to a privileged view and represent the collision between principle and practicality that collision between principle and practicality is also clearly evident in professional cycling a sport targeted at its last world championships by road gluing climate protesters and one highly susceptible to rapidly changing and unpredictable weather patterns but also one which appears to rely upon transporting hundreds of vehicles thousands of miles in order to succeed and grow. Races such as the Tour de France and Giro d'Italia have come in for criticism in recent years for organising increasingly frequent and increasingly far-flung starts for their races, such as in Hungary, Israel, Denmark, Northern Ireland, as well as including the almost now obligatory flight on the eve of the final stage, transporting the riders across the width of it there, France for a few laps around Paris and Rome. But how do you foster the growth of the sport, one that is famously economically precarious, as breakaway league and team bosses will constantly tell you, open up the new markets and ensure that it it's financially sustainable, while also making sure it does as minimal damage to the climate as possible? One person within the second world well-placed to discuss that question from all angles is Dara McQuaid a former racer and chairman of Green Aids, the team knows Diego Alula now, and also a consultant for the team now who manages the squad's relationship with the Alula Tourism Board. He's also, in case you didn't guess, the brother of UCI, former UCI president, Pat McQuay, and one of the people responsible for one of my favourite cycling-related weekends ever, the Giro's Big Start in Belfast in 2014. So he's no stranger to uh, flying pro cyclists around the world in the name of sport. Uh, it's great to have you on the podcast, Ara. How are you going on? Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Yeah, so one of the reasons I thought they invite you on to discuss ProSightland's quite odd and quite complex relationship with environmental concerns is that I noticed just before Christmas that you responded to an opinion piece, which was published in a rival publication, the Will Not Name, the call for flying to be completely banned from all grand tours a stance which you described in, uh, in your in your Twitter post as overly simplistic. So could you give us a broad outline from your experience of of being involved in teams, being involved in, in organising uh, grand tour starts in foreign countries, uh, why you feel that stance, why you feel calls to ban flying at grand tours that kind of reduce the carbon footprint as simplistic?
2: Well, um, thanks for that. Um, overall, I think, from a sort of helicopter view, I would say, you know, even if the three tourists started outside their countries in one year, the maximum we'd be talking about is 12, maybe even 16 flights. I and mean, when you think of how many flights take off and land every every day in Europe and around the world, it's ten, tens of thousands. Um, also, these flights are part of a professional working environment i mean there is a lot of people use planes to go on holidays which are very much a, a choice whereas these uh, the gentlemen and ladies who are professional cyclists and staff members and race organisers they're actually doing their work so that alone would say to me well this is um th- this is not a realistic option to suddenly ban the the use of flights to transport a a, a race entourage. Then there's the whole series of positive benefits that a visiting, say, Tour de France or Giro d'Italia has on a a smaller country, you know, Denmark, Ireland, uh, Yorkshire start for Tour de France was a big success, Amsterdam and Rotterdam and Utrecht have had starts. These are places that would not normally see one of the biggest sporting events Certainly, the biggest annual. But you know, you look at the Olympics or the football World Cup. The, these smaller territories and cities would never have the opportunity to have those huge sporting events in in their back door. And the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia allow that to happen with the with the myriad of benefits from tourism, economic activity, inspiring children, you know, when they see this amazing, I mean, they really are both, in my opinion, the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia, they're great shop windows for the sport of cycling and and the activity of cycling. And they, you know, youngsters that see this amazing uh, spectacle in these foreign countries can get inspired, not just to potentially become a a racing cyclist, but just to use a bicycle. They see the bicycle in a very, very cool surroundings of what a Grand Tour Start is. And even not just children, but ordinary adults could get inspired to say, you know what, cycling's actually very cool and it's environmentally friendly. I think I'll leave my car at home and, and start trying to cycle into work. So for me, there's there's many, many benefits to have in, having this. And uh, there are smarter ways for governing bodies and national governments to tackle our clearly, um, you, you know, uh, the, the environmental situation in the world is very precarious, but I think there's much smarter ways to tackle it than uh, put restrictions on um, the sport of cycling and how organisers can move their re- events around. For example, one thing I heard recently was that the French government have banned flights, uh, domestic flights, where a train journey can get get you there at almost the same time, maybe a little bit more, but within a certain percentage if a train can get you there, they will not allow a flight. That will have a huge impact. If that type of, you know, policy is put in, that's where we have a real impact on the planet. You know, trying to restrict a small number of flights for all of the other benefits that a foreign grand tour start delivers. We haven't even spoken about the economic situation within our sport. It's always precarious. These These events do not make huge fortunes and they need, economically, they need these foreign starts to keep them, their own situation financially sustainable. Um, but I would say that's even the least of the benefits of foreign starts. It is it's what all of the good stuff that's delivered to the start area um, is what I would see as, as a reason enough to allow this type of uh, um, project to take place.
1: Well, it's interesting you brought up, obviously, the financial part, which you're saying for Grand Tours is, is a smaller aspect of it. But obviously, uh, one of the most important things, we we'll are always bang on about it, as I kind of mentioned in the intro, like there's always this kind of talk that cycling financially precarious. There's always a lack of stability, you know, sponsors, race organizers. There's always that kind of fight to keep the show on the road, so to speak. And one of the things is beyond Grand Tours is the need uh to uh have races have races around the world and obviously you're just back from uh uh, the alula tour which is another part of cycling's ambition to grow in different markets uh this is obviously a thing because we're talking about like yes there's a small number of flights during grand tours but over the course of a year riders go into the middle east to china to australia to america Uh, that's a lot of our mileage for instance in 2021 i think quick steps annual emissions, 90% of that came from travel, and the totaled roughly 1,280 tons of CO2, or, uh, which was the equivalent of about 1,300 passengers taking return flights from Brussels to New York, and which would require 3,000 football pitches of reforestation to offset. So it's not insignificant, uh, the, the the footprint of a team over the course of a year, Obviously, that that's another part where it butts heads because there's one thing of that's to seemingly grew cycling that requires a lot of travel just in general. The group to have a global calendar. Where where do you kind of see the the balance there?
2: Um, I think we you know cycling stands on its own two feet in terms of uh, how it is looking at minimizing the uh, environmental impact. But would it be fair, for example, and as you said, I was just just back from uh, the Alula tour and I was talking to a school teacher who brought all these school kids out for the day and they did geography lessons and maths lessons and uh, history lessons from where they're at. So this teacher said to me, look, apart from the fact that the kids are excited to watch this new sport to them, it's also... Offered me an opportunity to, you know, bring them out and have all these different subjects being taught outside of the classroom. Would it be right to say, well, it it has to be a European sport? We're not we're not allowed to. We're not going to allow the sport to grow in countries where it hasn't been been a traditional sport. Um, I think every sport of note is a global sport, and there's travel. You look at the, the the economic or the environmental footprint of Formula One or, or soccer or any major sport you have to travel because most of them are um, being competed around the world. Um, so I'm not sure the, you know, the, the argument stacks up that we shouldn't grow the sport around the world because it is historically a European sport. The, most of the major teams are European. Most of the major races, I mean, if you pro- if you were to do a similar study and say, what percentage of the annual calendar is in Europe compared to the USA, Asia, Australia? You're pro- I'd say it's probably ninety percent, ten percent. So other sports may have an, a, a much much bigger uh, out of their traditional area uh, percentage. Um, so I, I'm quite the, the the supporter of globalizing the sport. I know. Back in the nineties and the nineties, when Pat was the president, it was one of his one of his main um, uh, platforms was to globalise it. And I think now we see our professional peloton in, in in Europe, both male and female, being made up of a much broader, much more interesting uh, uh, sort of national uh, makeup. So I think that's a positive thing for cycling developing in those countries. Everybody needs heroes. And you bring the big riders to a race and all of a sudden these kids have heroes. So um I would be a supporter of uh races in far flung places.
1: Yeah, and that's obviously one of your own personal in your you know, in your in your working capacity now is helping foster that. How how in practice does that work? Obviously being on the ground in Alula? How, how have you seen that kind of an action? You know, obviously talking about
2: well, uh, well, Two and a half years ago, I uh, started conversations with Alula to be potentially become a, a partner of, of the team, uh, January, February. And then by July, we announced them and they came onto the shoulders of the riders uh, of the team, uh, their, their brand. I then visited Alula uh, for the 2022, um, it was called the Saudi Tour at the time. And apart from a maybe four five or six, Bicycles painted in a hard shoulder. That was the limit of cycling infrastructure. In the two years since then, they've opened up forty-five kilometer bicycle path. They're going to, you know, probably do six, seven hundred kilometers of bike paths. There's a couple of bike hubs. They have the first cycle tourism company bringing cyclists there. Uh, Grand Tours project brought some riders to the uh, Lula Tour. Um, I myself then separately was. Uh, Involved in a site, we had a cycling symposium there in March, and it was basically uh, bringing people from around the world from different parts of the cycling industry to say how can we turn Alula into a world class cycling destination. As part of them launching, um, and by the way, it is in Saudi Arabia. But for example, two weeks ago, it was pretty fresh and beautiful days. So not it's not forty five degrees always there. It's very nice cycling weather. And then, as part of the um, launching their new bike path, they donated one thousand bicycles to uh, people in Alula to use. So, just by starting two and a half years ago, a sponsorship of of a of a team, they have then rolled that into creating a ten year cycling strategy, which is going to go across across the board in terms of local people, local cycling infrastructure, and then really trying to turn it into a cycling destination, massively positive impact that has resulted from their dipping their toe in into cycling to two and a half years later, it being like a major, major platform for them, for local people and for uh, their only economic well-being because people are now going to be doing bike rentals and uh, bike hotels. So, you know, it, an extremely positive impact. Uh, Knock on effect, uh, as Alula has found from their involvement in cycling. I've I've only seen positive impacts in those countries. I know Pat would have had a similar experience back in the nineties when he organised a Tour Philippines, a Tour tr- Lankawi. These are places that didn't traditionally have you no know, cycling. Now they've got track champions and good cyclists, and there's a Malaysian continental team. I mean, you bring cycling to a, a country or a region that is not known for it and um suddenly you know 20 years later you've got a kind of a, a a base of of people who are participating in the sport and you know i think that's only a good thing i think it's only a positive socially um for their for their for their own health as well i know from a saudi point of view one of their vision 2030 objectives is to make people you know be a little bit healthier and cycling certainly uh, will, will deliver that um, so, I think that the bringing it to regions or countries that have no history in cycling is is uh, no reason not to go there.
1: Well, it's interesting that I think you mentioned of like our kind of like Western perception of of of, of some of these nations, and that goes into what I'm next going to ask you about, which is the kind of uh, other aspect of where principle and like uh, butts up against financial practicality and necessity which is the 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 need to bring sponsors into a sport which is fundamentally reliant on sponsors and for instance you know the last few years we've seen lots of you know uh, uh, these sponsors attract the ire of uh, climate protesters like for instance the world Championship one was based against any uh, we also have you know see the the shale backlash that happened when British Eggman took on Shell as a sponsor uh, UAE for instance uh, and also for instance just to talk about uh, Green Age like I was a team that started with the name Green Age and one of its first sponsors Orca, which was one of Australia's largest mining companies and that's kind of an example of where you know yes there's one thing as you said travelling to these countries bringing the sport to places which don't have cycling culture, cycling uh, history and, and maybe creating a legacy there uh, but there's maybe another in allowing certain companies to attach themselves to what to the general public is seen as a clean green activity so where do you think, because obviously cycling needs money, but should it be pickier where its money comes from? Um, uh,
2: I, it's I suppose it's a, it's a very, very complex question and I'll try and N- yeah, so <laughs> no, no, no problem. I mean, I remember when I saw the backlash against Shell sponsoring um, uh, the British Fe- Federation, thinking, I, w- I wonder how many people in that backlash go into Petro Station and fill up to go visit their granny, you know, 200 miles away, if there's not a train that brings them there. And they don't think twice about that, but all of a sudden it's a big problem. Similarly, with, you know, the, the Middle East and these new countries that have come on board. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have spent over a hundred years buying their product, using their product. We all get in our cars every day, and we seem to be fine with using petrol. But then we don't seem to be fine, you know, taking money from petrol-producing countries, or maybe people are, you know, uh, talking about um, w- when um, countries have uh, different. S- justice systems and civil rights mm-hmm. are a bit. I mean, that one I do understand a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only tell you from my experience, it, and I had never been to Saudi Arabia before. Um, I uh, was talking with them on on Zoom during COVID, which was obviously an unusual situation. Um, we, as a sport, we don't have gate receipts. We don't have, by and large, you know, teams are not involved in them. Um, television revenues. Um, Other sports that uh, travel around the world and go to these other type of nations, they have massive television rights, massive gate receipts, massive merchandising. So I'm not saying two wrongs make a right, but our sport will wither and die if we end up saying, well, we can't take this type of sponsor, we can't take that type of sponsor. Um, My sister and I had a similar experience Moral dilemma. I remember in um, the mid 90s, uh, we were doing the official guide for Tour de Pont in the USA, and the organizers organized the first ever Tour of China. It was in 1995 or 96, I don't, don't remember. And they, uh, you know, we were contract publishers, and they said, we got a new job for you. We need this official guide for the Tour of China. It's got to be in simple Mandarin and English. Uh, da, da, da. We were obviously excited to get some new business. Then we found out that it was being sponsored by British American Tobacco. Kent Cigarettes was the title sponsor. And I remember we thought, Jeannie Mac, you know, that's not really that great. But, you know, needs must. We published the magazine. Uh, Cigarettes have obviously gone out of the sponsorship arena. But um, our sport is in no way in in nearly a, a strong enough financial position to be declining countries, regions or, or, or products, uh, in my opinion, obviously within limits. Um, mm. But I, for me, it's hypocritical for people to say not that don't take an oil sponsor and then everybody jumps in their car to, you know,
1: go on their holidays. Well, one thing those people would probably come back to you with is that uh, us jumping or anybody jumping in their car to visit their granny doesn't attach itself a kind of credibility to, to sponsors where any else can say, oh, we're uh, attached to cycling, it gives them, you know, a kind of like, oh, we're attached to this green sport, we're attached to this clean sport. Uh, that is where people would argue it's the kind of, the, is there a, you know, it's a deliberate nature for these companies that maybe target cycling, you know, it, it would be the comeback to that, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, man, and that's that's a, that's a fair point. And if, if if anything, I think I remember recently seeing an interview with um, the Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, and the American Fox News interviewer asked him, said, look, is, is this sport washing? And he said, well, most sponsorship is done to improve your image. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's kind of the obvious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not being flippant about it, but yeah. they're not – Doing it to harm their image, they're doing it to improve their image. They're doing it to raise awareness of a tourism destination, and mm-hmm. in in sense of of, of Alula. So, um, if from my point of view, if you add, add look at all of the reasons why you should block somebody or reasons why um, they should be allowed to come in as sponsors, I I think uh, I fall down on the. In spe- especially when it's cycling. Look, we, we should within reason. I'm not saying now, for example, I, I don't think I would do a, something sponsored by a cigarette company. I, I understand that. But um, we have to have a reasonable approach to it. And again, I always come back to the business model. Unfortunately, in our beloved sport, is a terrible one. It really is awful. Um, So w- we cannot be turning off potential... Um, revenue sources at will it, there's got to be a, a bit of a reasonable approach to it
1: So what's your solution then uh, what, what would be, what, what should the UCI what should organisers, what should teams do to maybe cut down Like at least go some way towards uh, combat and climate change while also like you talk about like the, the business model of the sport, is there a way we can change the business model to kind of make the best of both worlds is that possible?
2: Um, I've seen the sport, you know, do an awful lot of things in the last thirty years. That you look at you look back on now. I remember, you know, first going to the Tour de France in the nineteen eighties and seeing, you know, people drink two bottles of wine and then get in their car and drive. I mean, and nowadays we all have moved on from drink and driving. Um, I remember uh, not, you know, seeing rubbish everywhere. Mountainsides covered with rubbish now. You know, if you go to Tour de France, you see they've got a cleanup team, like massively, you know, significant machine, you know, industrial sustainability cleanup job. Um, But on the bigger question of moving the sport around, it is a difficult one. It is a difficult one because um, the very nature of the sport is, um, and the very special nature of it is, what riders are able to, the assistance they're able to get, the controls and security that's needed. Um, I think what we could be getting close to, you know, I've been talking to some electric car companies for the last five, six years. And, you know, uh, uh, say an average stage in a, in a Grand Tour is 200 kilometers. The car is actually mostly due an average of about 400. These days there's a lot more travel to and from starts and finishes. So there's very few electric cars you know, they're starting to get up there. Um, electric motorbikes for the for the security and the cops and the media motorbikes. There are ways, I think, in the next few years, our sport will will uh, bring down that um, environmental impact. Um, uh, flights is a difficult one.
1: Well, flights is a, in one because we obviously talked at the start about like foreign ground parts, but one of the thing is should flights within a country, for instance, to a final stage, be cut down as much, much as possible. Because the irony is that's a quite a recent phenomenon. Like uh, g- even when I was kind of first watching the tour and stuff, is that it used to be you made your way back up the Paris as much as you could during the final week. Rather it's yeah. now, like, oh, we'll have a stage in the Pyrenees, and then everybody gets a flight up the Paris. Is is that maybe a way? Is like looking at maybe the route and 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 changing things and trying to keep everything you know, as you said, not having to do massive transfers, like getting rid of these long transfers, is that a way, without hurting, is revenue streams comes into that, because it's obviously what towns want to host the event and all that kind of Yeah, uh,
2: and then a country's geography comes into it I mean, Italy Mm -hmm. has a capital which is quite further down, but the last few days of the race need to be up north Um, Both countries France and Italy, if we're talking about, and Spain we can talk about the three of them, the three of them have incredibly good um, train fast high speed train networks so i would i would like to think that that has been looked at as much as possible uh for moving the moving the caravan um but i think the u c i getting involved and putting you know limitations on where the races can go in terms of uh transfers you be a little bit careful but it it should be happening anyway i mean uh, High-speed rail is, and in those three countries anyway, when we're really just talking about transfers, we're really just talking about the Grand Tours because other races of five or ten days don't really need that. I'd love to see the sport be be at the front of environmental issues and be a leader rather than a follower. Um, uh, I've, I've, I've watched, for, I've been involved a little bit in Formula 1 and I've seen that they very proudly claim that they're, you know, Almost one hundred percent sustainable, even though they they fill a lot of planes full of the materials to ship them to all these. So that there must be doing something quite innovative to um to to lighten their uh, environmental impact, and it it shouldn't be just buying carbon um uh, uh, what do you call them um not tokens but um, credits. You know, I mean, it should be something more. It should be something more uh, real than buying carbon credits. Um, but I I'd love to see uh uh UCI race organizers teams create a commission that you know looks at every area of our sport and uh you know there's a lot of plastic involved you know well you, I was
1: gonna say about like one of the things that a lot of people and it's kind of like a uh you know an illustration of some of the waste and I know there's been mo- movements to get a stop but it is is like the Tour de France caravan is you know the kind of and that's uh, that's kind of goes back to the crux of their point is that these companies put money in to be part of that yeah look
2: i remember back in the you know the 80s and 90s just seeing how much plastic was thrown off those uh, uh camera. but we've all learned and moved on a bit from there and i think uh, major corporations are very aware that they need to be uh not creating plastics and whatnot and and uh w- when it's not really required um so there's lots of areas i think that we can you know uh, even in the bicycle industry you know you buy a jersey and it comes in a plastic bag well there's lots of di- a few different companies now are you know not doing that you, they're not giving you a jersey or your shorts in a plastic bag and i haven't been around a world tour team i've seen on industrial levels when all this stuff arrives and the amount of plastic you're left with um whereas i think a lot of the the um Bicycle industry is now, just like other industries, other sectors, looking at how, how can we make sure to be as environmentally um, as sustainable as possible. So um, I would be all fully supportive of any kind of new initiative or commission that was set up within cycling, not just from the UCI, because the UCI see, sees things from a federational, regulationary, Olympic sort of point of view, um, not oversimplifying their, their kind of remit, but it also needs to make sense from an organiser, from a team point of view, media as well. Um, so everybody should be sort of in it together, if you know what I mean, to to move the, the needle in the right
0: direction. So as you guys are aware, the Roadtc podcast is currently in association with Hammerhead. So we've looked at their Karu 2 on the site and... It is the most advanced cycling computer available today, with industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options. Hammerhead's exclusive Climber with predictive path technology feature lets you visualize and prepare for upcoming gradient changes in real time with or without a route loaded. Seamlessly and wirelessly import routes from Strava, Komoot, and more. You can route, reroute, or create pin drop routing on the fly, all with turn-by-turn directions and upcoming elevation changes. The Karoo 2's new e-bike integration brings detailed battery usage data right into your display so you can fuel your most epic adventures and explore your range with confidence, something that I'm sure Dave will be particularly excited about. Uh, Tens of thousands of cyclists have chosen the Karoo 2 as their trusted riding companions, including women's World Tour Team Canyon SRAM and Team Israel Premier Tech. Hammerhead athletes keep on course and stay aware of upcoming elevation changes with their Caro 2 devices. Hammerhead's Caro 2 has been named top GPS cycling computer across the industry for the last three years and continues to be a top choice for serious cyclists around the world. Right now, our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Caro 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code ROADCC, all in capital letters, at checkout to get yours today. So remember, use the promo code ROADCC, that's R-O-A-D-C-C, all in capitals, at checkout to get yours today.
1: As we enter what should be a general election year, stress on should be, it seems that low-traffic neighbourhoods or livable neighbourhoods or active streets are firmly back in the news. Last year, you may remember, some newspapers and media figures were briefed The government ministers have blocked money for these low-traffic schemes, which are designed to promote cycling and walking by preventing through traffic on certain mostly residential routes, either through the use of cameras or physical barriers, with uh, Transport Secretary Mark Harper repeating that claim uh, a few months later, while arguing that the so-called controversial schemes set people against each other. However, at the start of February, the Transport Action Network, a campaign group currently taking legal action against the government over cuts the active travel budgets, got hold of some documents which showed that despite Harper's claim, the government had not blocked councils from installing LTNs, with some applications rejected because they didn't meet Active Travel England standards. And in the same week earlier this month, an LTN trial in the Jesmond area of Newcastle was scrapped early by the council seven months before it was originally due to end after 77% of replies to a public consultation were in opposition to the trial. The decision to scrap the Jasmine LTN came despite a report into its success finding that air pollution had dropped by 13%, 2,500 fewer motorists were driving on one residential street and cycling journeys had increased by 100 a day. Meanwhile, another scheme, this time in Exeter, was similarly the subject of much debate and controversy, albeit with a rather different conclusion, at least for the time being, to the one in Newcastle. The Heavitry and Whipton of Streets trial, which has been a consistent target for vandalism, protests and intimidation of local politicians since it was first introduced last August, also faced an early end after a report submitted to the Council last month advised that the scheme could be abandoned early if its targets weren't met within weeks, despite only being five months into its stated 18-month trial period. That particular report, which was shrouded in political intrigue, claimed the motor traffic and journey times on boundary routes had increased significantly, while also calling for the power to scrap the trial to be transferred from the elected highways committee to an unelected officer. Those findings, it's safe to say, were torn to shreds by campaigners and councillors alike. With the Exeter Cycling Campaign describing the report as biased, minimal, outdated, insufficient, and badly presented. Uh, which some people might say about a few of my articles, but we'll leave it at that. So after a week. Of Knocking on doors and stating their case, the campaigners eventually won the day as Devon County Council, following a four-hour meeting which was punctuated by disruption from a vociferous and hostile anti-LTN crowd, voted to retain the scheme, at least for the time being, as I said. So, there's been... Quite a lot, as you can tell from that introduction, that's been going on over the past few weeks in Exeter when it comes to active streets and LTNs, and I'm still getting my head around it all, to be fair. So to help me unpack it all and what it all means for the future of livable active streets in the UK, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by one of the campaigners who stood firm in the face of some dodgy data and political machinations, uh, Lorna Devinish, a local resident and member of the spokes uh, and uh, spokesperson for the Tree and Whipton Liverpool uh, livable neighbourhood group. So it's great to have you on the podcast, Lorna. I nearly said Liverpool right there. <laughs> Before we record, I'll tell the listeners that I kept on uh, just uh, pronouncing the word liver- livable as Liverpool, which would be a completely different podcast. The Liverpool streets uh, trial would be would be interesting, but yeah, it's great to have you anyway, Lorna.
3: It's good to be here.
1: Thank you. So uh, obviously that's, you're uh, a resident, you live within the boundary of this uh, active streets trail, which has generated so much controversy. Uh, what, what? So you obviously kind of kept abreast, being like an active travel, cycling campaigner, all that, you, uh, and a resident as well, you basically kind of kept abreast of every development of, of this story, which is uh, you know a bit of a thriller <laughs> in the, in the world of ltns uh so could you we'll go we'll go on to like the report and all the kind of intrigues surrounding it and all the controversy and the hostility later but could you tell us rewind back and tell us a bit about uh the kind of original uh, uh the, the original intentions behind the trial when it was first introduced and, and the kind of feeling in the local area around it
3: yeah, um, it was it was really back in COVID times um, when uh, obviously the traffic dropped dramatically, and um, as, as probably happened right across the country, we set up a group WhatsApp group um, to look out for elderly neighbours, and um, that obviously rapidly evolved, and I'm sure it's followed the same trajectory across the country, and um, we started talking about traffic and eventually. Um, quickly realised we needed to hive off into a separate group because not everybody wanted to talk about traffic and it was causing some um, uh, controversy on on the main group. So we set up a, a Sweet Bar Lane traffic group. And, um, and of course, um, councils uh, took advantage, really, of, of COVID and the increase in cycling to put in a couple of filters. And so we had two new filters at that point And... Um, we were pleased when the council made those permanent as well um but but what it didn't do really was tackle the whole the the, 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 the system-wide problem across the whole area it did just it that really literally did just sort of displace the ongoing rat running traffic mm-hmm. onto the other streets and so we we, we pushed we, we began to campaign for uh, a, a much bigger scheme and and it took them three years and and the consultation actually, um, you know, I'm sure it could have been better. The promotion could have been better. But if you were paying attention, then, you know, as far as we were concerned, actually, if anything, they took a very long time about it. And they they consulted twice about um, what were her, our priorities for the, the neighbourhood. And reduction in traffic came out very high from that. And then they put forward four different schemes of sort of very, you know, and, and of course, when you put forward four schemes and then you can vote... <laughs> For any of them, you're not going to get you're not you're not getting kind of robust data on that. But actually, 40% supported a, you know, the scheme that had the most number of filters in it, and so um, uh, they went ahead and uh, eventually agreed to put that in. Uh, And they had some really they did have some great data. And I think one of the key um, data points was that that um, they've identified that any road carrying over 2,000 vehicle movements a day. Uh, that's sufficient to discourage people from cycling. And and the County Council has got strategies that say they want to make 50% of all journeys active travel journeys. And so, you know, they, 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 they do have the, the kind of stated policy objectives there. So how are they going to get to that? And um, my, my road was carrying three and a half thousand vehicles a day. Uh, it was a quite you know it, and the whole area was really a sort of it was being used as a sort of overflow road from the main road uh when when the traffic was bad, so there was a lot of rat running and and um you know and bad behavior by drivers and they tried a lot of things to to kind of get the be- the drivers to behave better you know twenty mile an hour limits chicanes speed humps nothing really uh you know did it did anything and um, so these filters that went in have succeeded in reducing that, that rat running quite considerably.
1: Yeah, this is interesting. As you know, it's the culmination of lots of different kind of policies, and as you said, like it's not been a quick "oh, we're going to put this in" <laughs> kind of kind of a job. Uh, and obviously, it's been in since uh, August.
0: Yeah. yeah, right.
1: The trial was introduced. It's supposed to be for eighteen months. Uh, we're now well, you know, six or so months into that. Uh, you obviously live within the boundary, as you said. Your street was one of the ones where there was lots and lots of rat-running traffic and through traffic. Uh, what have you seen the benefits of the scheme? Just on a personal level, what have you seen as the benefits of the trial? Um.
3: I mean a, a big increase in in cycling um which which radiates out from beyond the area because you know the, these cycle journeys are not just being made within the, the active streets trial area you know these are people going on journeys through and across town and and you know the, the, the official figures show a 40% increase in cycling um and and an 8% increase in walking so uh on it on its on its sort of original stated objectives it's been a a huge success. There's been all sorts of, of benefits. I mean, particularly at the beginning, um, uh, and I'll come on later to bus gate violations, but at the beginning, the road outside, uh, so there's this, there's, there's, there's three schools within the area, primary schools, and one of them was on a particularly uh, narrow and difficult a road that uh, linked two main roads and the traffic outside was terrible and they tried a, a school street but the school couldn't enforce it and so that that kind of fell um, sort of failed to work and that was very limited anyway so the the school the, the, the school in question is called Ladysmith primary school it, it's, it's actually an infant and a juniors it's where my kids went um, and um, the traffic outside that improved incredibly you know people were you know the parents of Of kids who are there now we're so happy at the improvement um in the first three or so months um and and you know it went from being kind of car choked illegal parking dangerous behavior to you know a a real flood of people walking and cycling and cargo bikes and um you know uh, lovely um and um yeah, I mean it's it's, it's brought us it brought us together as a as a community in the sense that you know the, those of us who are very supportive of, we've all got to know our our, our neighbours uh, very well. Um, yeah, I mean it, it, you can hear the bird song, um, You know, it's quieter. It feels more like a residential area should
1: has and obviously it's uh, with the caveat that you as a kind of campaigner for this and and an activist you're going to have a you know very pro trial approach uh to it, but what has the kind of reception been like throughout uh, the area?
3: well obviously um there was a huge backlash and and um but you know m- my sense is that that's that's from the people who don't live in the area. It's mostly from people who trou who liked to travel through it. I mean, but there are people who live in the area who are opposed to it, um, and and I had a conversation with a with a neighbour. I genuinely didn't know which way she would she would kind of which side she would fall down on, but she she was very against it, and she you know and and it did, and, and and I had a very civil and interesting conversation with her about why that is, and there were a couple of things that kind of threw up. One was that the carers couldn't get to her house so easily, and so she her mother got fifty minutes less care a week as a result of them being scheduled you know care visits the carers were going in five times a day and they might be scheduled to be at another house in between on the other side of the filter so you know maybe up to five times a day they were having to go around the filter so that was cutting down on the but i mean sh- you know it, you just also feel like you know there, it shouldn't be beyond the, the wit of humankind to overcome that uh, either with e-bikes for carers um or, or, or just better scheduling so so I mean that that was one point and then the other was that she, she herself felt she wasn't healthy fit enough to ride a bike she had COPD and, and arthritis so she drove to a gym and she drove to walk her dog in the forest and um and so she found it inconvenient personally and, I, and she said 20 years ago I might have supported this and I sort of felt very sad for her in a way really you know bearing in mind that COPD, if you're not a smoker, it could be caused by air pollution. Uh and your obviously your air pollution inside your car is much worse than it is outside it. And and also just that, you know, if we'd done this 20 years ago, you know, how much um chronic illness, you know, might we have avoided as a as a society, really?
1: Yeah. And that's and that's one of the things. You know, because it's not just uh, oh, this is the get you to cycle more, it's all the other benefits exactly yeah people who are opposed on health reasons you know if you're thinking in terms of you know for you know for the future for a you know of a wider perspective it's like well these we've can heard, we've heard help from a
3: couple of people who um you know who were opposed or neutral or you know who've said that it's you know there's one lovely guy who said this has transformed my life you know i cycle i cycle to work now and, and i've never been fitter and i love it you know and I've got a friend who's a cleaner he has several clients inside the area, and as soon as he encountered the first filter, he said right, that's it, Left his car at home, got on his bike and and now he wouldn't have it any other way. He said he absolutely loves it he said he just can't get you know he can't leave the house without apart from on a bike now it's just, you know whatever the weather he does that so you know there there are you know, those are little examples, but I think um, you know for for the, the obviously the the noisiest bit has been the the, the opposition and it's been very noisy and, and and quite bullying as you say.
1: Yeah, and that's what we'll get on to now because uh, I think yes, as you said, it's a noisy, noisy backlash, and we've covered it quite a bit on on, on the site since it's been introduced. We've seen uh, like really unsavoury incidents involving vandalism, right away. The kind of irony of uh, ballards being destroyed and taken away by a uh, youngsters on bikes which was (laughs) (laughs) quite the irony Uh, but we also had you know intimidation of local politicians and uh, you know I think examples of faeces in the post uh, and Mm -hmm. stuff like that Uh, you know there was a kerfuffle over a Santa sleigh ride (laughs) which uh, dominated the lead up to Christmas so uh, it's interesting because people have obviously spoken to uh, in the area in Exeter you know it's the scene, this kind of thing, where there's just this general feeling of hostility, uh, especially on social media, which, surprise, surprise, anybody's ever encountered social media, it's a hotbed of hostility, you know, and we have this kind of thing of, uh, you know, there's conspiracy theories around it, there's a lot of kind of, you know, uh, just kind of like a toxic atmosphere, Uh, and I'm not, like, we could talk about maybe how is that permeated onto the ground as well? Is that permeated into the streets in terms of, uh, in, in terms of how people are interacting with each other on both sides of the camp? But why do you just think the trial has caused such division and controversy and hostility? You know why? Why has it become? Because it's one of those ones, uh, as, as we mentioned before we started the recording. Uh, there's, you know, these controversies take place across the UK. And, and you know similar themes are brought up. You know, I mentioned the Jasmine trial. People saying the same thing. Oh, I can't cycle. I can't do this. You know, the kind of same opposition to it arises. They're all pretty uh, along the same grounds. But this one in particular has seemed to be very, you know, toxic, hostile. Why do you think that's been the case? Yeah, I I I, I don't know whether um, we're we're
3: we're more than anywhere else i mean we heard we heard we, we've been in contact with the oxford's East, uh people, people kind of defending the the oxford um ltns and 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 actually they had a huge backlash as well they had they had uh, a lot of removal of, of bollards in the early weeks and they had to go out and, and defend their bollards so i i don't know if it's particular i think i think it is a a a more generalised issue of the normalisation of car culture and the inability of some people, and and, and just some people are a bit more slow to to work it out than others, but the inability of some people to accept um, that we can't keep on increasing our car traffic and using our cars for for very short journeys. And, And those who can get out of their cars need to be need to be doing that uh for the sake of mobility for everyone i mean exeter so exeter is one of the you know is, is a city that is growing um you know it's, it's growing huge and it's hugely and it's growing fast you know where they're building thousands of houses on the outskirts of exeter and it was a city that was probably ripe for expansion to be fair it was it was very small and yet it's well positioned and you know within reach of of, of majors um, you know birmingham and london and so on so and bristol So it's uh, it is growing and that and a lot of that and that is generating a lot of 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 traffic and um, it, it, the city is is regularly gridlocked so you know something is going to have to give um, but that I think people people are sort of grieving for this um, you know that sense of freedom you got when you first passed your driving license yeah I I, do, I remember that too I'm a driver as well and I remember the suddenly this 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 sense as an 18 year old I could go anywhere you know yeah. And it's exciting and and I think that sort of that sort of uh sticks and then it also kind of gets um sort of, sort of um built on by the, the the financial investment that people make in their cars and that sense of um i guess that sense that they've they've sort of you know it's a sort of sign that you've you've made it in life if you've got a big car yeah. um you, you people are quite defined by their by their yeah. cars and their vehicles and and this this idea that they you know, that a civilized in a civilized country you you know, you don't have to battle through bad weather to get places you you know you don't have to go on the bus you can you can get in your your massive car and you can you can drive and that's a right and that that's become very deeply embedded and and so these sort of tentative attempts to sort of remove that that right or or um if not not remove it totally but to kind of recalibrate the balance with more active travel for the good of society, for the good of our health, for the good of our, you know, uh, residential streets and safety and so on. That that they're kind of they're kind of grieving the loss of that entitlement that's been built up over forty years, and it's going to take time.
1: It is up to thinking creatively. And speaking of thinking creatively about things, we'll go on to this report. <laughs> uh, that uh, so basically, uh, be, yeah uh that elicits laughter upon its very mention uh so this report was submitted to the uh, highways and traffic committee which is made up of members of uh, both the county council Devon county council and Exeter city council okay. as well and uh i think the kind of quote that always jumps on me is that the report was sprung on 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 that uh, committee and it... Basically outlined the successes or failures of <coughs> of the of this the trial in a very short window since it opened. So, you know, and advised that it could be abandoned if its targets weren't met pretty sharply. And considering we're only a matter of months in and there's a lot of issues with the report, which I'm sure you'll talk about. Uh, what did what did you make of it? What what when you first saw the report? What was the kind of general response within, like the pro uh, active students? I mean, we
3: were, we were totally stunned. We were completely stunned by it, and and it came out you know six days before the meeting. Yeah, that was how long we had to mobilise. Um, and yeah, we, I mean there, there were so many issues with it, but I mean. Uh, I mean and maybe this is lessons for future trials, but um the 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 eight measures that they they came up with i mean these were not actually ever had never been set published as measures <laughs> before you know in the, in the in the consultation, the only measure actually was you know would would the streets in the area become more uh would uh people in the area feel more comfortable walking and cycling in the area as a result of the trial? Um, and uh, you know the, the figures absolutely kind of smash that target, really. So um, to see these 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 measures, which you know, I mean, you know, it's, you can see that, that perhaps boundary roads, you know, might be something that you would look at. But you know, where are the figures in there, um, such that that you know that some displacement, you know, six percent, you know, increase on boundary roads. You know in a, within a two three month period at a time when there were roadworks in numerous other places, there'd be a the landslide on one road and there were traffic lights on another. so I mean did where were, were those those changes really so material and if if they are so material, why is that more you know more important you know, leaving aside the fact that you haven't given enough time for this to settle down and we know that the, the kind of improvements in, you know increase over time there's been a recent study showing that. So, yeah, we were, you yeah. and then they, and then they used this random <laughs> version of their of, of a rag status as well. That was kind of yeah. uh, that was that was where we really started to smell a rat um, and feel like the officers who were from the county council, because that's where the transportation department is and where they have the traffic officers, and transport planners. Um, yeah, they, we felt they'd been leaned on politically. That the that the removal of political cover at a national level by Rishi Sunak had spooked the county council and also the, the, the volume of opposition had, had, you know, basically they were going to give in to the bullies. Um, and, and because this report really went against everything that they'd, they'd said, you know, in previous reports. So they had, they had things that, that were, the things that were, uh, good, uh, were given just sort of no color, things that were, Really, you know, quite neutral or positive. We're given an amber status, which you know, um, traffic lights normally means warning, yeah, you know, doesn't it? Yeah. Well,
1: that's the end They had this colour scheme, you know, which basically yeah. was a traffic like green, amber, red, yeah. neutral kind of thing. Yeah. Um, increase in cycling journeys was uh, categorised as amber.
3: great. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. No impact on on emergency services. So. That also got an amber. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it I mean it, it it did just look like a political stitch up job, uh, frankly. Um so, yeah, really disappointed.
1: Yeah, this is what it kind of want because obviously you did you have any inkling that this report was coming out?
3: Yeah, we knew we knew there was due to be uh an update. Mm-hmm. That was all we were expecting was an update, not not a recommendation to to hand off the decision to officers and cancel a trial. Yeah. We were all just gutted that it wasn't going to be, you know, apparently You know, looking, it was looking like it, it wasn't going to be given its full time to to prove itself, really, and prove its benefits, and and also that you know, on the face of it, you know, it's a solid success <laughs> on, on its original metrics. It, 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 it was a success, and and lots of us in the group uh, are are enjoying, you know, the the, the improved um, environment. So yeah we did we we we, we kind of did swing into to action and we've um we've got uh, some very talented people on our group and one of them sat down and just forensically pulled the report apart in a in a document which she then sent to all the councillors and what we on on the highways and transportation committee oh no it's actually called the highways and traffic orders committee i think hat-top. Yeah, hat-top. Um, <laughs> and um now that, that committee has a majority, uh, Labour because, uh, because it's extra, it's extra councillors. It's chaired by our county councillor who's Labour. And, uh, uh, but we're told, uh, and, and he's been solid. He, you know, Danny, Danny Barnes, I've got to give him absolutely his due. He's been solid. We've asked him to, to implement this and he's done it and he's, he's, um, he's, he's taken an almost, an enormous amount of flack. Uh, uh he's a young man, um, but he's been very clear and very uh very i think strong and resilient in the face of this opposition and um but he he you know we do know that not all the uh councillors the labor councillors were necessary you know, some of them were wavering some of them you know it, it was in a, in a sense it was a perfect opportunity if you were yeah kind of uh, a a councillor who just you know had had enough of the grief who just wanted this off their their plates, uh, it, you know, the opportunity to hand it off to a, an officer with no comeback, cancel the whole thing, rip it out, have mm-hmm. done with it, you know that that you know maybe that was a tempting prospect for some yeah, of to, them
1: get, to get rid but, of but, the <laughs> loser. Yeah. You know, so, uh, yeah. So so
3: um, but what we what we found out was that that actually in our efforts and so we wrote we all wrote. We all kind of galvanised, you know, uh, neighbours to write in support of it. Because this is the other thing: is oh, God, that's such a mess, isn't it? How you, how do you gauge support or opposition to an LTN? I mean, I think Newcastle have made a right hash of that, clearly, really? uh, by not collecting postcodes. But who do you ask? You know, do you ask? Yeah, you know, because you've got you've got a situation of um, you know an area which is getting the the disbenefit of the through traffic. And then all the people who drive through, who live outside the area, largely, you know, who who are, who, so so you should, you know, so the the, antis case is everyone in Exeter should be consulted. Well, you know, I I have no idea what result that would give, Um, but you've also got these kind of not really good enough for for purpose consultation mechanisms. So we we know of people who are against it, who are emailing on a daily basis. Mm. Yeah, you know, how how is that being counted? Yeah, you know, and we hear from counsellors saying all we hear is from the anti side, but we can't compete against that. You know, and, and why should we have to as well? You know, we're yeah. typically working off, you know, parents busy. You know, but you know, should we? You know, it's it's totally ludicrous this idea that we we should somehow be all emailing on a daily basis. Um, there's got to be a mechanism for sifting through that. Anyway, so we galvanised. You know, we I we got you know people who are sort of more on the sidelines to, to email in their support. Um, a, a group did go door knocking and found, you know, more support than they expected, actually, in, in a particular road. So, you know, kind of, yeah. And then and what we've, and there's some strategy that we've sort of adopted that we got from Oxford. We're about to commence some more door knocking in advance of the local election. Uh, and this this was very wise um, from Oxford. He said, you can chunk people into 20, 60, 20. T- there'll be 20% dead opposed. Hmm. never And will never be persuaded. And you knock on their door and you find that out and you mark them as, you know, number one, 20% opposed. You never go back. You, don't, you know, do not waste your energy on those people. And then there's the 60% who are kind of just not bothered. Either way, you know, they've, they've, they've been adapted or, or they're persuadable or they quite like it but they haven't said anything yet or they don't want to put their head above the parapet. And so those are the ones you need to really work on. And then there's the 20% who are really supportive and those ones we want to try and bring into our campaign. And it's just a really useful way of thinking about it, really, because you could spend an awful lot of energy shouting at people who will never change their mind.
1: Yeah, well... Um... Yeah, because I think that's kind of because that's the way these debates are mostly framed is the ones who the two twenties shouting at each yeah. other. Yeah,
3: <laughs> I think exactly. To, that, to, that's the social be, media, uh, and the and the rest and the rest of them are getting on with their lives.
1: Yeah, Thank exactly, you. and and enjoying it or being maybe mildly feeling mildly inconvenienced. You know, that's exactly. the kind of exactly. uh, but obviously when it comes to the meeting, the council meeting itself, the. The twenty percent shoot up. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
3: At either end of the scale, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Because it, it itself was quite like these here meetings are normally quite perfunctory,
3: kind yes. of
1: you know rubber one, stamping. One member of affairs, the public, and uh, this one turned into a four. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. The, the Springsteen concerts of uh, <laughs> of <the> traffic committee <laughs> meetings. Yeah, <I think. laughs> uh, yeah, and. So were you were you at? the mean what was the kind of atmosphere like both outside and, and inside? Because I think there was quite a lot of disruption and and like, you know, hackling and all that kind of thing?
3: Yeah. I watched online. I had I had to go to a meeting at work, so I couldn't go my son went actually, seventeen year old, he um it was his first ever experience of a council meeting, which was pretty, <laughs> pretty wild.
1: Right. Right. Mike set the bar pretty <laughs> pretty high, <or> pretty low, <laughs> a bit. Yeah, he was,
3: really, he was pretty shocked by the behaviour. Um, yeah, there was a lot of groaning and uh, shouting, and 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 yeah. I mean, to be to actually credit to the to the the, the anti campaigners, they can mobilise. You know, they do they do get they, they can get their numbers out. Um. Um. But yeah, um, what was quite what was quite interesting was that yes, we'd we, we think we'd managed to sway. So the, so the wavering councillors had had read had probably read our, our letter breaking apart the report, and they raised many of them raised those issues with 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 officers and questioned the rag ratings and the 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 shortness of the of the of the period monitoring period. And um, actually, there was one Labour councillor who, you know, we we kind of fully expected to vote to uh, in, fa- in support of the recommendation to end the trial. And and I, I was very impressed with her because she's always been she never voted in favour of it in the first place. She's always been a bit against it. But I was really <laughs> she 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 said she was so appalled at the kind of undemocratic nature mm-hmm. of the proposal to hand it off to officers that she said that she 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 opposed it she so we ended up with, with the nine um labour councillors and one green councillor voting down those officer recommendations to end the trial um and i have to say absolute hats off to the courage of those councillors who as you say have been doing a very kind of low key below blow-the-radar job up until now um, and they had to face considerable, you know, op- you know, a noisy opposition in the gallery, and go ahead and 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 vote it down. And they gave, you know, yeah, four hours it took. <laughs> they gave <it> a good, <laughs> gave it a good chunk of time to do that. But they yeah. they made they made they made a great uh, decision, um, you know, saying yeah. that the trial must continue and uh and get you know more and better data.
1: Less than a third of the way in to, to it being implemented but it, there's still another over a year to go yeah you know for so this is not the end of anything it's the, it's the it's only the end of the beginning look at it that way and where do you see it then where do you see the whole uh because obviously we're in a, an environment it's a, this is very and I think you mentioned this we're, this is a very fluctuating kind of time for all this we've got like a general action coming up like the kind of um. overall tenor of this debate could change
0: yeah.
1: uh, very soon uh, in in any kind of way, you know. And yeah. I think it's interesting. Uh, we're in that state of flux. We're in uh, a lot of change. And uh, where do you see both in terms of accidents, but both in terms of Heavitree and Whipton trial and also then throughout the UK, where do you see this kind of the future of active streets, trails, LTNs? Yeah.
3: Um so uh, locally, I mean I, I I sort of veer between optimism and, and, and pessimism on this really. I mean I'd say that our child's very much still, you know, kind of in recess. The, there's um there's an outstanding issue of the bus gate violation. So we've got two bus gates, um and um people worked out within two or three months that they weren't really being being policed. And one of them was um they sprayed it over with a thick black paint on, on Boxing Day. And, and at the beginning of the trial, the county council had been absolutely brilliant about rapidly replacing bollards. But, follow it, but following this report and um, uh, the county council going cold on it, no one had been out to clean these signs. So, um, so people were just driving through with impunity. And that situation outside that school I mentioned, Ladysmith. Um, has just gone back to being terrible again now, um, and in fact, a car, a, a child was knocked off uh, their bike, and a, a woman on a cargo bike with a, a baby on the back was reversed into by a car doing a manoeuvre around the bus gate. And so we really fear that the sort of violations of the bus gate are um, skewing the figures, um, mm. but also because you know people are being encouraged to cycle more, but also, people are driving through the bus gates. You know those, those people who might be cycling for the first time are not as safe as they should be. Um, uh, so we we uh, we cleaned the signs, and, and amazingly enough, that had an immediate effect. You know, fewer people drove through it now that you can mm. see the, the restrictions again. Um, and we we are we're planning some, we are planning some direct action uh, to you know inspired by what they did in Oxford to 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 do some human bollarding and, and just really call on Devon and Cornwall police to to police it. Um now they say they weren't properly uh they you know they they are not they aren't resourced sufficiently. But actually I think with the power of social media they they probably only need to issue, you know, letters to ten percent of the, the people that we've reported through the um you know the video submission yeah. scheme, OpsNAP. Um and that would go around like wildfire and, and probably you know, it probably wouldn't take that much effort. You know, random visits by a patrol car, uh, key times. Even just, you know, having the parking wardens there at school pick up and drop off. So all these things could be done and I don't think it would be a huge resource, but there, there seems to be a, an impasse on that. So that's our kind of next action really is to try and get the bus gates properly policed. And then, uh, yeah, we'll have to take it kind of hat by <laughs> hat um and we've we we have mobilized uh i'd say more from being a bit of a kind of uh whatsapp support group into being much more action oriented and we've now got various kind of working groups um and we will be out knocking on doors and chunking people up um on that twenty sixty twenty basis and looking to recruit more active supporters and uh perhaps have a have a kind of day of um uh of action and support of, of the trial and try and get try and try and get the the sort of quiet support that we think exists to be more mm-hmm. visible. Um, so that's 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 our kind of um, plans. And uh, I think the 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 January report and meeting was a wake up call to us. Really, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've been we've been we had been proceeding in quite a sort of polite and middle class way but also not not that active it was a lot of it was quite a lot of chat amongst ourselves and we, i think we probably you know informed a lot of relationships and kind of clarified our position and but we, we we realized that we need to do more now get out there
0: welcome back that was episode 71 of the road cc podcast in association with hammerhead i hope that you guys enjoyed it i think that there was a lot of kind of eye-opening stuff in there I think Dara is incredibly knowledgeable about yeah not just about kind of environmental issues around cycling but just around cycling in general I mean he's got kind of a wealth of knowledge um, you know and I'm sure he's a name that many of you will have heard of and be familiar with as well Um, and Lorna's kind of experience as well is something that I think that a lot of people are going to be seeing kind of in the near future we know that There's likely to be a more, let's say, a greener, friendly government coming in at some point this year. Um, And when they do, we're, we're probably more likely to see LTNs. We're going to see kickback from them and we're going to see kind of political moves to make them look as bad as possible. So I think the kind of things that Lorna was talking about is going to be very pertinent to what... We will be seeing in the country as a whole over the next few years. Um, so I think it was incredibly valuable. Um, and yes, thanks, uh, Dara, and thanks, Lorna, for uh, being involved. And so, as always, um, if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email to podcast at road.cc or you can find us on social media. Just search for road.cc. So until next time, cycle safe. Bye.